0: Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. There's a book out a new book called Panama in Black. It is the first historical study to examine the activism of Caribbean migrants and their descendants as they forged a, a diasporic uh, community there in Panama. And uh, let's welcome to the show historian, author Dr. Keisha Coronialdi. Coronialdi. Did I do that?
1: All right. <laughs> yes, that last one was it. You got it.
0: Oh, my goodness. All right. So is this name Spanish? What, what is Cornialdi?
1: It's Italian via Jamaica. So it's uh, that Caribbean story that uh, everybody knows a little bit about. <laughs> so it's sort of Jamaica to Costa Rica, Panama to New York. So a little bit of everywhere.
0: All right. So your people, instead of going to London in the wind rush, went to Panama because That's there right. were opportunities around bananas. If I'm not missing my history here. there was some.
1: Beginning. Yeah, there were bananas. There was the railroad and then finally the canal. So the canal was the biggest. So if you ever talk to anybody who has roots in Panama, they will have a story to tell about a relative who went there to build the canal or in service economies. Um, And so that's been the one thing, you know, whenever I tell people about, you know, just Panama or, or just the book, they're like, Oh, my uncle, my great grandfather, there's, there's some connection that's always drawn. So one of the biggest migration stories of the 20th century is the number of people from the anglophone caribbean the french caribbean you know parts of the dutch caribbean who made their way to panama for the building of of the canal and who remained Uh, some you know went elsewhere eventually back to barbados and jamaica some to new york and so i was fascinated by thinking about what happens after you make that big move when you place a set of uncertainties, how do you create community and how do you do it as well in the context of anti-Blackness policies that were rampant at that point in time? You you had a number of nations from Canada all the way down to Argentina that had uh, immigration policies preventing Black people from migrating. And so it was kind of a real, um, an unfortunate reality that people were trying to make home and make community and they were also being faced with these kinds of extensive xenophobic and anti-black policies
0: um dr Keisha, I, I'm as you're talking i'm thinking you know they love our labor to build their economy and to build their wealth uh but when mm-hmm. they can't use that anymore then you got to go and you can't come in you know and so I, that's you know, right uh, so I think That's about the right. railroads here, you know, of course, That's the Chinese right. come help us build the railroads, but don't bring any women because we don't want you reproducing. Yeah. And then we're going to make sure you're
1: not citizens so you can't stay. That's right. That's right. And in the case of Panama, we're going to take citizenship from your children, which is what I write about in the book, whereby it becomes an issue of not only that we just want to extract your labor. We want to make it so clear to you that you don't belong here, that we're going to take away your citizenship. And so a case of just a constitution of the forties in the Americas where you actually have citizenship taken away on the basis of race is one of those untold and, and not necessarily
2: unknown,
1: right? But not a really extremely detailed and told narrative of this kind of anti-Blackness that we see and, and how people had to survive that kind of explicit attempt at actually erasing their presence.
2: So what exactly did that look like in terms Mm -hmm. of policy and the time period and all of those kinds of things? Wait, did
0: I properly, wait, hold on, hold on Dr. Keisha. Dr. Karetha oh, yeah. Mitchell, did I properly introduce y'all on, on the mic, though? I do, I do well, like
1: I know. I, I sort of feel like I I think I follow you on Twitter for sure. Yeah, we
2: met at some point. <laughs> I just can't place where.
1: That? I know, because your face is very familiar to me and is your name. and But, yeah, it's well, good to see you <laughs> and good speak too. to you.
2: <laughs> yeah, so I just wanted you to back up and lay out for all of us, um, That's you right. know, precisely what does that process look like?
1: Yes, so... Based on the constitution of 1940, um, 1941 specifically was passed, it was being debated in 40, passed in 41. It detailed that anyone who had a parent that was born uh, in the Anglophone Caribbean had to petition for their citizenship to be recognized in Panama. Until that was the case, you did not have access to a cedula, which is an identity card. Um, You also would not have, of course, access to passports. And it would similarly lead to you having uh, a lot of insecurities as well as um, impossibilities of enrolling into classes, voting, et cetera. So it really So it's literally the opposite of birthright citizenship. It's exactly the opposite of birthright citizenship and doing it in the context of, in the Americas, we are familiar with birthright citizenship, right? So most you know countries in the Americas, it's like, okay, you're born here, you are a citizen. This was an attempt at retracting that and saying, actually, we can revise this. There are other places in the world where they don't do it this way. And the fact that it is explicitly targeting Uh, Afro-Caribbeans, in addition to other groups that were described as undesirable immigrants, and this included migrants from throughout Asia, Africa, uh, but the biggest population affected were those of uh, Afro-Caribbean migrants because they were many who had lived in Panama from the middle of the 19th century onwards. Uh, Then the canal and those who arrived meant that their population numbers were really large. So they were the ones that were most affected by it, and that also were most active to try to bring it down. And so that's sort of, I begin, the book talks a little bit about activist attorneys in places like Bolong, sometimes being one of the few Black people who actually was, uh, had a license as an attorney in Panama, and using that to advocate on behalf of the members of his community. And so that, that idea of people wanting and and seeing that this profession that they had entailed, that becoming a lawyer could be something that they could use to try to go forth, you know, to the Supreme Court and other spaces to speak on behalf of that population. It's something that I, you know, found myself as I was reading it, of course, angry that this happened at all, but deeply um, just in awe of the fortitude that it took to form part of this, to, to survive it. I mean, I had an experience of being in the archives and coming across a letter of a young woman who is 20 years old and is writing to have her petition of, of citizenship, to have her right to citizenship acknowledged. And I found myself almost crying, right, in the archive because I could see in this letter written with beautiful penmanship, uh, someone that could have been, you know, my aunt, my grandmother, my mother and and the fact that she was forced to do that, right, to have to explain and to have to petition for something that so many of us just assume is the reality that you are a birth-based citizenship, uh, a birth-based citizen uh, was for me, some of the most compelling, but also deeply emotional aspects of writing <laughs> a book that you're sort of thinking, okay, you're putting out a narrative of what happens but for me almost every person that I write about and I came in contact with uh, left a little piece of themselves in me and so that that for me is what I hope people uh, can appreciate about especially the work that those of us who are doing histories that are of people that have had to survive these immense kinds of injustices and particularly of black people who have had to survive these injustices that they can be inspired but also be a bit angry about it too and use that anger in a positive way.
0: We're talking with uh Dr. Keisha. Cornealdi, Cornealdi, <laughs> Cornealdi. I just, I, have to, I have to do it phonetically in my head and then then uh, you know pronounce it because it's not natural to me to speak Italian and it's not natural mm-hmm. to your people to speak Italian. So I want to ask mm-hmm. you: um, Do you do you consider yourself Jamaican? Do you consider yourself African? Because it was Nigeria, I think, it was Nigeria to Jamaica. To do you consider yourself Panamanian and? Well yeah, how do you identify?
1: Well, first and foremost, I'm a black woman. Um, I'm a black woman wherever I am in the world. Um, It's something that is uh, deeply rooted in terms of how I was raised and who I am in the world. And I very much see myself as having a long link to members of the African diaspora that extend from Nigeria to Jamaica, to Panama, to New York. So I I definitely see myself as a Part of this really vibrant
0: black diaspora and where are we now because it, it there was a a whole you know assimilation piece that general you know the early generations wanted and this goes for all immigrants that come in they want you know their next their progeny to fit in um mm-hmm. uh, i think we're at a place now where we realize there's no fitting in to a to a power structure that's first of all made up constructed myth mythologized uh, I think that's correct uh, so, so we're in, in your in your study because even writing to petition for citizenship yes we mm-hmm. deserve all of the things that come with it but even in this country where black people are citizens we still don't have certain inalienable rights of life liberty and the pursuit of happiness especially with law enforcement can take our lives at any mm-hmm. point in time and they have the liberty to do that uh, which they do right when they when they feel like it so uh, voting rights we're supposed to have that eh Eh, mm-hmm. If you live in Georgia, if you live in Florida, may you may or may not have that right, or Louisiana or Mississippi. So, so how do we navigate these spaces? I like that you centered your blackness, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. in your book, like what what should we what can we glean from that to to be free in the future?
1: First and foremost, is that assimilation isn't the answer, right? That that language of assimilation needs to be put aside and cast aside because. It is vocabulary created by those seeking to erase the power and agency of Black people, migrants, and their descendants. And so instead, what we have to think of is a sort of multi-pronged approach that you have to undertake with any kind of activism. It isn't just, you know, getting access to citizenship, because to your point, it can be taken away. It can be undermined. Uh, It isn't just being able to Uh, be elected for office, because again, it can also be undermined, uh, that it has to be about education. It has to be about creating that next generation of people who are aware of what came before them. It has to be connected to on-the-ground work, people in their homes creating community. One of the things that I write about in the book is an organization created by women in a Brooklyn brownstone, right? So how are people at the grassroots communal level thinking about the kind of change that they want to see, and certainly using what they have access to, whether it is citizenship, whether it is mobility, et cetera, to make a better future for others, to not forget that there are going to be this sort of practice of anti-Blackness and white supremacy continues to be the norm for much of the world, right? So what I write about happening in Panama is not distinct to Panama, it's not distinct to the United States, we're seeing migrants die as they're trying to make their way from the African continent to European continent on a daily basis, but that's barely reported. And so we have to be conscientious about that hemispheric and really global understanding, because so many of us have histories that if we sit down and listen to that, we would be amazed at the patterns that we see and the lessons that we can learn from people who, again, used everything in their possession from the law, to education, to going uh, marching for labor union rights, all of these things together are crucial component of trying to engage and enact any kind of change.
2: I so appreciate the way that you have brought us back to something we've been talking about all show, which is resiliency. And I'm struck by the fact that the history you're giving us is from the 1940s. So your point about us paying attention to the world the African diaspora everywhere and Karen's commitment to exposing this audience to the world and our stories around the world, I love that part of what you're underscoring for us is the resiliency and the way that we can plug in to all of that resiliency. So thank you so much.
1: No, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that the more we stop and listen to each other, the more we're just going to be appreciative of what's happening. I'm having my students right now reading the work of Claudia Jones, Ah. uh, Black feminist, communist of, you know, the 1940s as well, right? So the 40s is on my mind constantly, (laughs) but... I'm telling you, I already know that when they look at her essays, you know, written at this time, they're like, but this woman is talking about what's happening today, right? Because she knew you needed to center the needs and rights of Black women, right? She was like, this is how we free all of us. And so they see this and they're like, my God, she's writing this in like 49 at the same time that she's being persecuted by the FBI and later on deported. So there are all of these histories of radicalism that are really spearheaded by black people who just, when you see the kinds of things that they were willing to do when they had so little protections, it's astounding, astounding really. Mm
0: Well, what you've been able to do, and I'm just in the Nubia chat and a bunch of people have already read the book and it's fire. Uh, So Yeah. So it's Panama in black. The breadcrumbs are there, but also you give full meals uh, that people can digest and see themselves. And to Dr. Mitchell's point, the resiliency, because we are all in this room from different parts of the world, different uh, parts, but from the same place doing doing our thing in this world today. So all things are possible. And I just want to wish you all the success, bestsellers in the next book and the next book. Are you working on another one after this?
1: Yeah, I'm already trying to debate a little bit. I'm going back this time, the 60s, and I'm looking at um, the struggle between communist and anti-communist discussions and debates that Black women were engaged in in Panama and the U.S. during this time, because it's I'm really interested in how that hysteria, that anti-communist hysteria shut down a lot of possibilities in terms of what was possible uh, regarding liberation. I look
0: look forward to that. And I want you to come back, uh, Dr. Corny Aldi.
1: (laughs) I would love to be back. (laughs) Thank you so much.